Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you have joined us. My name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here at Inspire, and I cannot wait to get into this word this morning. As a church, we are going through the book of Romans, um, and I'm excited for this series that we are that we have titled By Faith. And actually, this is the third season of this series. We're in episode seven. If you want to catch up, please go check out the podcast. We'd love for you to be able to uh, get up to speed. Um, but uh, what Paul is doing at this point is, is we have already been through most of Romans, and today we are hitting chapter 14, chapter 14. And I'm excited because Paul has already defined and defended the gospel, and so now what he's doing is he's talking about the gospel applied. And, and what he's doing is this, is he's taking things that we tend to uh, put into categories, uh, things that we tend to put into boxes, and we tend to say, okay, my faith is over here, and my life is over here, Sunday's here, and every other day's here. And Paul's trying to say, no, 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 actually, your, your Christianity and your everyday life come together, and the gospel transforms everything that you do. And then he talks about these marks of what a uh, gospel-centered disciple looks like, what a gospel-centered community looks like, and he continues on with the marks of a true Christian. And I wonder if the mark that Paul talks about in chapter 14 would have been on your list. Let's find out. So we're going to read Romans chapter 14. Here we go. Verse 1, it says this, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with, uh, that is weak will only eat vegetables. Mm -hmm. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servant? Oh, then their own master will judge them whether they stand or fall, and with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating it. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it is to honor the Lord. And if we die, it is to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose. 
to be the Lord both of the living and of the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So so let's stop condemning each other. Decide in Instead, to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I, I know I am convinced of the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. However, if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person, it's wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Do, do not let your eating ruin someone from whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of the living of life, of goodness and of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are accepted. But it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. Stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it, for you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. Wow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And I pray, Lord God, that as we begin to unpack it, Lord God, that as we begin to to open it up, Lord Jesus, that we, Lord God, will uh, listen and lean in closely, God, with, with an attitude, Lord God, of being willing, Heavenly Father, to lay everything out, out, down at your feet, all, all presuppositions, God, all preconceived ideas of who you are and what Christianity is supposed to be. We will lay that down at your feet and we will hear with your word and let your word t- tell us and define who you are and define Christianity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not, not too much, just enough to make me happy, but, but not enough to get me addicted. I, I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate uh, covetous, covetousness and, and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and, and uh, think about being a missionary in some alien culture, right? No, no, no. See, I want enough gospel because I, uh, to get me et- you know, ecstasy, but, but, but not repentance. I want transcendence, but I don't want transformation. 
I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and, and my children well-behaved, but, but not so much that I find that my ambitions are redirected or that my giving is too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. See, what Paul is doing is he's letting us know that it is possible to be religious, it's possible to be moral, but to not actually have a supernaturally changed heart. That it's possible to have a cheap, watered-down gospel in your life. And Romans 14 really challenges this idea. Three dollars worth of gospel, please. As we continue through the letter of the church in Rome, Paul is now, like I said before, done defining and, and, and done defending the gospel, and he has moved to show us how this actually fleshes out. So things like being saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, isn't just some sort of principle that's abstract that we can kind of do a cute church clap to and say amen, but it's, it's in an existential way becomes something that actually transforms the way we do, well, anything everything, everything, how we make decisions, right? How, how you know, we, we handle our marriages and raise our kids and what we invest uh, money and time and energy in. And of course, how we interact with each other and especially how we interact with each other in the community of Christ. And we can find ourselves oftentimes in churches sort of arguing and debating over secondary doctrines uh, or over methods. You know, for, for instance, Holy Communion. Some churches believe that you should break bread and, and pass the bread around. Other churches believe it's okay to have stations and individuals will go up uh, to that station and, and, and get the bread and, and the elements themselves. Uh, some churches believe that Holy Communion should only be reserved for the members of that particular local church, while other churches believe that anybody that has been saved uh, the, the, can uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, listen, th these are matters that we can differentiate in, but, but we don't have to divide over. And that's really the key. Because if you have been grappled, if you, if you have really understood and grasped the gospel, then, then what we know is this, and what Paul tells us in, four, in chapter 14 is this, is that social relations really, um, from a grace-changed Christian, will use their power to serve and not exploit. Now, now, the way we're going to understand this particular mark of Christianity is by looking at the dispute that has been taking place in this church of Rome. And uh, you might, have, as I was reading the text, might have been like, well, wait a minute, I think wasn't this dispute also somewhere else? And yes, it was. There, there was a very similar yet slightly different um, dispute about uh, it's about eating meat that happened in Corinth, and Paul also wrote to that church as well, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But as we go through chapter 14, there's really three areas that I'd love to highlight. First is the problem, then the false solution, and then the real solution. So first the problem, then the false solution, and then the real 
solution. So number one, the problem. Look at verses, uh, you know, from chapter one, uh, I mean, sorry, it's from chapter 14, verses one through four. Um, Paul says this, that listen, we need to accept people whose faith is weak and, and quarreling over disputable matters that, that one person's faith allows them to eat meat and, and one person's faith does not. And, and that one person should not uh, go in and, and quarrel or, or look down on or, or treat with contempt somebody that has a different viewpoint on whether or not it's okay to eat meat. Well, <laughs> wait a minute. What is this fight about, right? Is Paul saying, wait, wait, vegetarians are weak and those that eat pork chops and ribs and, and steaks and chicken, that they have strong faith? Is that what's happening here? <laughs> Not actually. Um, what's happening is in Leviticus and in, Deuteron- in Deuteronomy, there, there are a long list of foods that have been forbidden um, to the Israelites for, for many years. And these foods were called unclean foods. Now, what was the purpose of an unclean food? Well, the, the purpose of all of those regulations of clean and unclean food um, and behavior and so on um, what was, was really this. Um, Jesus and Mark chapter 7, and Paul in all of the book of Galatians taught that Christians, uh, when they were to obey these sort of clean dietary laws in the Old Testament, it really had two purposes. One purpose was to help Israel keep its national identity when it was sometimes overrun or living amidst other dominant, more popular, more powerful nations, right? But, but the second reason is so that it was drilled inside of their soul, this very important concept, which is that you can't just go before the presence of a holy God without some kind of cleansing. Now, notice in verse 14, where Paul says that the Lord Jesus, uh, it says that in the Lord Jesus, uh, no food is unclean, right? And that's what both Jesus and Paul taught to Christians, that, that uh, it is Christ that makes us clean and presentable before the Father. So in other words, no amount of regulations or prescriptions could do that. Therefore, the clean laws that were prescribed in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And that's why we don't follow them anymore in any kind of particular way, right? Um, Because notice again what Paul's saying here in verse 14. And in summary, what he's saying is this, is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, nothing is clean and unclean um, itself. Or or to put it another way, Jesus is what makes you clean. That's what Paul's saying is that Jesus is what makes you clean. And that's the gospel. It's not up to you to do. It's not up to you to kind of clean your own heart or to kind of clean up your life. It's in Christ that you are claimed, that you were cleaned, and that's the gospel. But here's what's interesting. There must have been a group of people in the church of Rome that didn't understand the implications of the gospel. And that's the reason why Paul could call them not just disobedient, not just narrow-minded, right? But, but he calls them weak in their understanding, weak in their faith. In other words, they did not understand who they are in Jesus Christ. They did not understand the safety that they have in Jesus. 
And, and this is completely uh, radical to the way we kind of think. See, their understanding was, listen, um, I'm going to continue to stick to these dietary laws of the Old Testament. And one of the best places, places to do that in Rome, um, where you really couldn't get any kind of kosher food, was just not to eat meat at all. So these people, what they were saying was this. They were saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but just to be safe, I'm also going to follow these rules. Because if I do Jesus plus this, then I know that I'm acceptable, right? That, I, that, I'm, that I'm complete. Now, let me just say this. Um, one of the themes of our preaching here at Inspire is that the gospel is so radical that, that, the, that the gospel, it makes you so complete in Christ. Your, your safety by grace um, is so complete that there isn't anything that you can do that more that needs to be done because it was all done on the cross and in the rest resurrection. It was all done. It was paid for. It was done on the cross. And, and, and this is radical because every other culture, every other religion, uh, and every human heart really works on the default mode that, that says this, that says, if you are acceptable, the, then, then you want to uh, earn it. If you're going to be approved, right? If you're going to be celebrated, then, then you have to earn it. You got to earn it. So when a Christian actually accepts the gospel, it is so counterintuitive, it's so different in, in which the way our heart works that even if you accept that up here intellectually, it takes the rest of your life to work out and see those implications because every area of our life, we are still actually operating as though that's not true. And so these people are weak in their faith because what they're really saying is, uh, yes, I believe in Jesus, but it's Jesus plus something. You know, and if I have Jesus plus something, then I'm spiritually okay. And Paul says, no, you're not. Because what you're doing, anytime you do Jesus plus something, you're demoting Jesus. You're demoting the effectiveness of his death and his resurrection. And you have to lay down all of your trying because it's all dead. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. That's the message of Paul. That's the message of Paul. You say, well, what does this have to do with culture? Well, the answer is quite a lot, particularly if you compare this with what happened in Corinth. See, some of you, again, are watching this and, and you're hearing this dispute over me and, and in the back of your mind, you're thinking about what also happened at Corinth and it seems like it's the same dispute and in some ways and in many ways it is. Because yes, in the church of Corinth, Paul writes to them and this church in Corinth had a, a multiplicity of problems, right? And yet, what the one that he addresses first, the one that's on his heart the most, the one that concerns him is the disunity that he's hearing about within the church. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. 
See, the church had developed schisms sort of based on personalities. There was one group that lined with Paul, and because Paul planted the church, these were sort of the charter members of the church, if you will. They liked the traditional way of doing things, right? Um, and then there were some people in the church that say, well, we follow Apollos, and Apollos was, was Greek, and so these were the cultured and sophisticated, you know, edumacated group. Then there was another group in that church that said, well, you know, we follow Peter, and they wanted to make sure that their racial and cultural identity and traditions weren't messed with. And, and then you had the super spiritual group that said, and I'm not part of any of them, I belong to Jesus. And this is the group that would use sort of spiritual language to make themselves better than everybody else. And they were all fighting. They were all disputing over whether or not to eat meat. And here's why. If you went to the market then and you wanted to buy meat at the market, which is where you had to go to get your meat if you were to buy it, um, this is what would happen is a pagan priest would come out and before anybody could sell meat, he would bless the meat. He would bless it, you know, in the name of Athena or Zeus or, or whatever, right? Um, and, so the, and so the Corinth church, uh, they were saying, listen, some Christians say, you can't eat that meat. You can't buy the meat at the market because it's been blessed by a pagan priest. And, and so it has the, this other God's name on it. But other people were saying, well, of course we can eat this meat. I mean, it's just meat, right? And, and Paul, interestingly enough, um, says that the people who said that they can't eat meat offered to idols, he also calls them weak. Not, not, in other words, he says they're not seeing how complete and safe they are in Jesus Christ. That they're thinking, well, maybe these gods still have some sort of power, and I don't want to eat meat because I, you know, I'm superstitious, and I, you know, I, there might be a curse on it. And they don't see how safe they are in Christ. So he says they're weak, that, that they don't see the completeness of who they are in Jesus Christ. And people who think they can eat any kind of meat, it, you know, um, he calls them strong. Um, and, and here is are people trying to do the dietary laws of the Old Testament, and, and they are weak, and there are people who are saying, I can eat all kinds of meats, and, and they're strong. And, and when I'm reading this, I cannot help but think about what's going on today, right? It, it, much in the same way Christians today are arguing. They're saying, uh, yes, we should open the churches, and we should begin to meet in person. Other, church, uh, other Christians are saying, no, 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 we, 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 we shouldn't meet just yet. Let, you know, let, let's move in caution. Some Christians are saying, wait a minute. And if, if you wear your mask, then that means that you must not have faith in Jesus. Other, other Christians are saying, well, wait a minute. If you don't wear your mask, then you're not loving your neighbor. You're being selfish and you're thinking of only your own needs and comforts, right? And, 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 and all of a sudden, one group begins to look down on or turn their nose up on or criticize or belittle or feel morally, spiritually, and theologically superior than the other group. But here's the question for both now and for what we're seeing in Rome and in Corinth. Why do they have these particular views? Why? Well, two things. Number one is culture. So many of our fights and our disputes, many of our philosophical, theological, and doctrinal views, to a great degree, have culture behind it. Because our culture really influences the way we see things more than we might think. Now, now, speaking as a white American, you know, sometimes us as white Americans, we hear that word culture and, and we tend to put that word on everybody else, right? Um, 
And in fact, let me just address white Americans for just a moment, because the thing is, is this, is that oftentimes when we see how things ought to be done, that we're, we're actually seeing that through a white lens or a white way of thinking. And your culture and my culture is influencing us more than we think. But, but we don't realize it because we're swimming in our own culture so much that we're like a fish. You know the old saying, don't ask a fish about water because the fish will ask what water? Because it's all around him. It, it, it's so much a part, of, a part of his environment that he doesn't even recognize it. And our culture has, has become so dominant. It's so everywhere and, and in everything that when somebody points out, well, this might be your perspective because of your culture. Sometimes as a white American, you know, I have a hard time. And I know many others have a hard time recognizing that fact. We think, well, no, that's not being white or having a white perspective. That's just how things are. But that's not true. And, and, and before you turn me off, listen to this. I'm not being relativistic because here's the second thing we learned from this. Every culture, every culture needs to be corrected by the gospel somewhere. And every culture also has insights into the gospel that people from other cultures can't see as well. And therefore, here's the point, we need each other. We need each other. You desperately need to know and hear from Christians of other races and other cultures, and you really need to begin to, 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 to come together um, from, from people that are different than you. Because, listen, uh, in other cultures, uh, they can conceive some parts of God's truth better and some parts worse. And, and, and only when we come together can we see sort of the whole picture, the beauty of the gospel. Can we really begin to understand God? C.S. Lewis told the story about this guy named Jack and Ronald and Charles. And Ronald ended up passing away. And um, what he noticed, what, what Charles noticed was that when Ronald passed, passed away, him and Jack would hang out, but it wasn't the same. That there was something that Ronald could pull out of Jack that Charles could not. And so what Charles soon discovered is that when he lost Ronald, he also lost a part of Jack. What, what, what he discovered was that how much coming together and different people brought out a fuller and more complete humanity. Humanity. And, and, and if that's true about a regular human, how much more is that true about Jesus Christ? And see, the temptation is always to hang out with people that think and agree with you. But if you do that, then you'll never see the implications of the gospel. We have to do the work it takes to be brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and we have to cross racial and cultural barriers. I'm sure all of us watched the recent inhumane videos and wrongful deaths of George Floyd and even Ahmaud Arbery. And these are just a few of the countless cases of wrongful death that's been happening in the black community. And I have to be honest, um, when I first was writing this segment, I was trying to find some sort of way to sound profound, 
to articulate what was going on in my mind and my heart um, because I wanted to make some kind of impact. And it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle. And Becca came in and, and she started praying with me and she said, Roger, just be transparent. And so that's what I'm going to do. Um, in many ways, I struggled because I think, well, who am I to speak on such things as race and coming together and standing up for injustice and speak against racism? Because sure, I'll, I'll write, you know, a post, I'll... I'll write a post in disgust and in outrage, and, and all of that will be true. Um, but I, I'm challenged to do more than that. Uh, I'm challenged, and, and, and part of the reason that um, I sort of struggle with standing before you today is because um, I recognize my responsibility in needing to put turn words into actions, in doing more than just shaking my head when I see injustice or racism. And let's be clear, it's not just racism that's out there, but, but also racism that's in here, that racism that lives even within the body of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that the root of, of racism really is a resistance against the gospel of salvation. Paul basically says that if you claim to be a Christian, but yet you feel like your race is more noble than other races, then you have forgotten the gospel. And it's interesting because in Paul's writings, he, he doesn't just focus on the sinful behavior of disunity within the church, but, but the sinful attitude of self-righteousness that, that lays beneath it. And you might be saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, Pastor Roger, I hear what you're saying, I got it, but I'm, you know, I, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, I, 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 what, what's, it's horrible what's happening, but I'm not morally responsible. Well, well, let me challenge you with this. In the Bible, Joshua chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, and the whole book of Romans makes no sense if you think of moral responsibility in strictly individualistic terms. For example, in Daniel chapter 9, we see Daniel confessing sin, and, and, and he, as he's repenting, he, he says that it is his responsibility to repent for the sins of his ancestors, sins that he had nothing to do with at all, nothing to do with, and, and yet he's repenting for those. Now, I hear things like this quite often. They say, yeah, you know, um, it's a shame about slavery and what happened, but, but I've never owned any slaves. So why, you know, why, why in the world does anybody think that, that at, just because I'm white that now I have to own responsibility to this community? I mean, I'm not the one who owns slaves. I, I'm, I'm against slavery. I'm not racist, but, but I'm, I'm also not morally responsible. But here, what we see in Daniel chapter 9 is that Daniel feels a responsibility for what his ancestors did. Why? Because he knows that the culture that he's a part of produced the sins of the past and that he is still part of that culture. He senses the responsibility and the Bible senses the responsibility. In fact, the whole structure of the gospel is based on corporate responsibility. See, when we see wrongful deaths and evil and racism, we, we, we are not to look at it and just say, oh, how awful someone should do something about that. No, we're responsible. 
If you really want to go all the way down and say, I'm only responsible for what I have done, if that's really what you're trying to say, then the reality is there is no gospel. You see that? Because in the end, our salvation ends up being corporate. It's not something we earn. It's something that comes to us from being joined with Christ in his body. And at the very heart of the gospel, at the heart of theology, what the Bible says about you, about your family, about the, the Bible says about not just your culture, but what the Bible says about the entire human race is important. Because how sin happens, how salvation happens, those are corporate realities and responsibilities. And the fact is we need to lament over injustice. If we have been transformed by the gospel, then we will be a people who will mourn with those who mourn. We we won't be quick to criticize, well, why did that certain community respond in that way? We will empathize. We won't create cultural barriers, but we'll cross them. When Jesus went to the women at the well, there was a problem. His followers were like, well, wait a minute, we Jews don't associate with Samaritans. They had, a, they had a different view of worship than we do. But Jesus went and waited at the well for Samaritan women because, watch this, spiritual needs must always override cultural differences. I'll say it again. Spiritual needs must always override cultural differences. And, and when I say culture, know that I also mean church culture. It, see, each church has a culture, and there's a culture within that culture, too. And in fact, write this down. There is a direct link between how God relates to believers and how those believers relate to each other. So so Paul is addressing the division that has come to the body of believers, a cultural division, a theological division, a political division, even a philosophical division. And the problem is most of us really start dividing over things that don't matter, right? Well, Sister Watermelon left the church because she didn't like how Sister Cantaloupe was in charge of the potluck. And Sister Cantaloupe left the church because she didn't like how Sister watermelon, organize the Christmas choir, and, and, then, and then you just, we just leave, we divide over things we don't have to divide over, right? We, I don't agree with that, and I don't like how Pastor Roger did that, and I don't like his pink sweater, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we just go on, we divide over so little things. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, in just a few more minutes, I'm actually going to go through the next two points quite quickly, and I'm going to start with number two, the false solution. First, I'm going to tell you what the, what the solution isn't. See, the gospel calls for unity, right? Now, now, towards the bottom of chapter 14, he is not calling for uniformity, meaning he doesn't say, okay, everybody has to start eating meat, right? Or everybody has to start eating veggies, right? He, he's not saying, okay, churches, this one says you have to wear a tie, so, so you know, everyone get on their ties, right? He, he's not saying that. He, he doesn't say, well, listen, this church over here believes in altar calls and this church doesn't, so let's just start doing altar calls. He, he doesn't do that. Rather, the unity that Paul is talking about isn't because we're all the same, but because we're all worshiping the same God. And here's why I write this down, because unity does not mean uniformity. Because it's the goal that creates unity. If a football team is, 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 is unified, It doesn't mean that everybody's playing the same position, but it does mean that everybody's heading towards the same goal line. 
If an orchestra is harmonious, it's not because they're all playing the same instrument. It's because they're all playing the same song. If a choir is singing in great harmony, it's not because they're all singing the same parts, but it's because their different parts are coming together to sing the same song. So when somebody says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, how do you know Christianity is true? Why should I believe Christianity is true? Churches can't even agree on worship styles. Do we sing hymns or contemporary? But see, that is the beauty of unity and diversity in Christ Jesus. So the false solution is not to say, well, everybody has to agree on everything right? The, the false solution is, is not to say, well, listen, I won't bother you about stuff and you won't bother me about stuff. I won't correct you and you won't correct me. We, we just won't talk about it. We, we just won't talk about our differences. We, we won't talk about our different opinions. That is not the solution. So what's the real solution that Paul is bringing to us here in chapter 14? Well, here it is. Point three, the real solution. Yes, you talk about differences. Yes, you evaluate. But notice what he says in verse 14. Paul says this, I know I am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it, don't let your eating ruin someone from whom Christ died. Now, what does that mean? He, he says, look, this person feels like they can't eat meat. Now, this person isn't just being stupid, right? But, but their conscience is, is uninformed and they need to work out the gospel. They need to think about the implications of, of what the gospel says, and so if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat and you're still eating it, then he says, you're no longer acting in love. In other words, look at this. If you say, look, um, I'm not going to let the fact that I got all these people with their sensitivities around, I, I'm not going to let them keep me from living the, the type of life I want to live. Well, yes, you are. You are if you want to follow the pattern of Jesus. See, you will change your life for the sake that they are your brother and your sister. In other words, you're, you're going to say, okay, I may not agree with you. I, I may not see you on this, but I'm going to be patient. I'm going to try to understand. I'm going to be sympathetic. I'm going to get into your thinking and try my best to understand you. See, for you to say, well, this person's sensitivity isn't my problem is to deny the fact that you are a member of one body. Paul is talking about receiving one another, lifting up one another. Look at verse 19. It says, so then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. That's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians 6.2 when he says, bear one another's burdens. When Paul says, bear one another's burdens, he doesn't mean put up with one another, Right? He's saying, help them get underneath the other person's burden. Take responsibility for that burden. Shoulder that burden for your friend so they don't have to face it alone. And this is saying that you don't own, uh, that, that if you don't own one another's feelings, right? Um, if, if you don't worry about another person's weaknesses, 
if you, if, you, if you don't let the other person's sensitivities have an effect and influence and shape the way in which you live, that you are not living according to the gospel. And that's the only way that we're going to move toward being a people who can praise God with one voice. The question is, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? Where, where do we get the power to do this? To go against the natural part of us that says, I'm not going to change my life for you, right? Well, it's by getting more than $3 worth of gospel. It's by getting more than just enough for ecstasy, uh, but not repentance, transcendence, but not transformation. But it's by going all in and allowing the gospel to completely revolutionize your life, changing how you interact and treat and think about your brother or your sister that has a different opinion than you or that you think might be wrong about a topic. Well, wait a minute, how does the gospel, how does me looking at the gospel, thinking about the gospel do that? Because you remember that when I was deeply differing from God, Jesus Christ came and entered into my reality. He entered into my weakness. He entered into my flesh. He didn't wait for me to believe, right? He didn't wait for you to become a Christian. He radically adjusted his life for you and for me to make space in it you see that? He entered in. He radically adjusted. And he did that before we even believed in him. In other words, your whole life revolves around the fact that when Jesus Christ opened himself to you, he did it while you were wrong, when you didn't believe the right thing. So how should that make you treat people who, who don't believe the same as you or, or treat somebody that you think is wrong how do you treat a brother and sister that's in the, that is in the church, that is in the body that you don't agree with? It should impact the way you live towards them. See, you were saved by somebody who gave himself to you and entered a relationship with you and entered into your humanity when you were wrong. This is how the gospel changes us, friend. This is how. When we think about what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us and we begin to praise him for that. It's only when we come together that we'll know him and see everything he has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you because this is a challenging message. It challenges us to wake up to certain realities. It challenges us to be a voice, to stand. It challenges us to reach across cultural barriers and to work together, to be unified as a body. It, it challenges us to understand the, the corporate moral responsibility we have. And Heavenly Father, it challenges us, God, to be willing to change our lives for the sake of a brother and a sister. 
that, that we, it's not that we don't talk about it or we don't address it or, or, or we don't have conversations about it, but what it, but what it is, is is we try to understand the other person and ultimately we come together and we love each other because we worship you, God. Not because we are uniform in everything, but because we have unity and diversity. Lord Jesus, we repent of every time, God, that we have cheapened the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for your kindness, for your forgiveness, and for the salvation we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspired Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspired Churches through Instagram at Inspired Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspired Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspiredchurches.com for more information.